0: The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit POMH.org. Well, good afternoon, Mars Hill. How are you all? Hello, the three of you. <laughs> it's good to see all of you, three, and the rest of you as well. Um, been traveling again, but this time to a really neat place, a little country called Israel. Uh, first time I'd ever gotten to go to um, Israel, went on a trip with an organization called Passages. We do biblical tours and we also explore the current geopolitical crisis that is occurring in that area of the world right now, specifically between Israel and Palestinian territories. Uh, But it it was, it was a really amazing trip, I'd highly recommend. We got to go to places like Jerusalem, uh, the Battle of Ella, where David and Goliath fought, up to Galilee and Capernaum, Tiberius, the places where Jesus did most of his ministry. Uh, and it was almost too much to take in. You really don't know how touched you've been by a place until you've returned. And so for the past week and a half or so, been trying to decompress and go back through the Gospels and Scripture and read. Like, oh, I was there. This is a really, really neat opportunity. Uh, And and the Lord taught me a lot of things when I was there. Uh, One of them in particular I wanted to share with you because I thought that that you would would want to hear this. Um, Wherever we went in Israel, whether it was in the old city of Jerusalem or down near Gaza or up where Caesarea Philippi used to be in the Galilee region today, the Golan Heights, There was one thing that kept appearing and that was cats. (laughs) There are cats everywhere in Israel. Doesn't matter where you are, tomb of David, cat. Church of the Holy Sepulcher, some reason, cat. (laughs) Walking along the shores of Galilee, how'd you get here? You don't like water, cat. They are everywhere. I saw like 14 cats. I took pictures, I started sending them to my wife, and be like, You wouldn't believe how many feral cats are here. You know how much I like cats. But there was one instance in particular the Garden of Gethsemane. We just had a devotion, very somber, quiet time. I was praying, and then I felt something on my leg. <laughs> it was this light brush, almost apologetic, but it doesn't care what you think must be a cat, I thought to myself, and I opened up my eyes, and I looked down, and it was a kitten of all kinds of cats, (laughs) and I said, Lord, I see that you are trying to teach me a lesson, so officially in front of you, my Mars Hill family, I repent for all the cat jokes that I have told. I am not as sanctified yet to say I like cats, nor do I imagine in this life we'll ever love them. But I pledge to you, the amount of cat jokes I tell will be severely reduced <laughs> as, amount, as, a, as a result of, of my experience in the Holy Land, right? That's the biggest lesson I learned there. Well, if you have a copy of scripture, turn to John chapter 1, and we are in just verse 3 today. I thought two verses last week was a bit much, so let's slow down. <laughs> we'll do one verse. John chapter 1, verse 3. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a story that seems to have nothing to do with anything, but we'll tie it in. The beginning of the 19th century, Europe was in turmoil. The French emperor Napoleon was on a campaign across Europe to consolidate his power and wrest control of the entire continent under his um, just self-identified throne, and In 1812, Bonaparte made the fatal error of deciding that fall in September he was going to invade the western plains of Russia. At that time, it seemed like Napoleon's army was invincible. They even called it the Grand Army. Nobody could defeat it. Until Napoleon met the Russian forces. A quarter of a million men fought. In one battle, 75,000 of them died. It was declared a French victory, but it really wasn't when historians look backwards at it, because even though the French had won, it cost them a lot. And as they continued to march forward into Russia, winter came, they were ill-prepared, their supply lines were all but abolished, men were deserting, and so Napoleon made the difficult decision to Withdraw from Russia. When they came back into Napoleon's territory, the army that had gone into Russia was reduced reduced to one-tenth its original size. And so what looked like a victory for the French actually, in hindsight, was a major victory for the Russians. And it became a celebrated fact for them. In 1880, Russian composer Tchaikovsky, who you may know as the composer of ballets such as Swan Lake or The Nutcracker, was commissioned to create an orchestral piece to commemorate and celebrate Russia's victory over Napoleon and his army. And with such a daunting task for a Russian citizen, he must have asked questions like, what kind of peace should this be? What should introduce this piece, this overture. What kind of overture am I going to write? It's gotta be one that's simultaneously somber to honor the deaths and yet celebratory because we know they won. It has to be both quiet and loud. It has to be one that's shocking, a victory anthem at the mystery of the Russian victory, the sadness of the loss, and the joy that comes with being the victor. It's one that is going to introduce a story that everybody already knows and has the entire story compacted into it. This overture, this introduction, the story before the story itself, we know as the 1812 overture. Who has heard the 1812 overture? It begins very slow with strings. We heard them a little bit there before in a very somber tone. And yet its ending is anything but slow and calm, right? It's this big, lots of brass, lots of noise, lots of chimes. Sounds like they took garbage cans and dumped them. And then this part, we all know this part, right? They even had cannons for goodness sake. And there's one story where an orchestra performed this piece and then allowed the cannon fires to to blow, but they were loaded and caught the opera house on fire. Um, That's what happens when you have cannons in your percussion section, right? It's the pre story that tells the story. And it's meant to shock and it's meant to, to awe us. It's a fanfare. Commentary after commentary, as we've been preparing for John, has been telling us that John's first 18 verses are a prologue, an introduction, information you ought to know before you read the rest of the gospel. But I've come to be convinced that these 18 verses are not a mere prologue. They're an overture. One that has more in common with Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture than it does with the introduction of Morgan Freeman in a movie, right? Here, in these first 18 verses of John, we learn that God exists. God has a son, God's Son is with God. God's Son is God. God's Son created all things. God's Son came into the things that He created. God's creation did not recognize its creator. Faith in God gives life, and that life does not come from our own volition, but from the very will of God. Theology, philosophy, origins, cosmology, salvation, the relationship of human will and divine sovereignty are all wrapped up in 18 verses of an incredible, loud, and yet solemn overture to the beginning of John's Gospel. John's words are simultaneously somber and celebratory. They are somber when we read things like, the world didn't recognize its creator. But it's also celebratory when it says things like, all who believed in him were given life. John's words are both loud and quiet. In the beginning, makes us think back to the proclamation of God at creation, and yet quietly tells us the word incarnated into flesh. And from the other stories we know, that's a very humbling thing that God the Son did through the Virgin Mary in a small backwoods town called Bethlehem. John's words are shocking. God exists. God is Son. God incarnated into human form. Faith is what saves. God's will alone saves. What a victory anthem of mystery and joy over a story that we all know how it ends. Here, friends, in John 1 through 18, we are reading the apostles' 1812 overture. It's the loud and the necessary introduction to the great drama that is about to unfold before us through the rest of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Can you hear the melody of Tchaikovsky here? He was in the beginning with the Word, the punch of Tchaikovsky's canons, undermining or underlining the point that John has just made. And now, today, we come to the next phrase in this musical piece. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through him, the word, without him not anything made, not was not anything made that was made. Last week Jack drew our attention to the fact that John 1 is actually conjuring up images of Genesis 1 in our minds, and that's intentional. Both begin in the beginning. So John 1:1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then here we have John 1:1. 1, 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 1:1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then now we have here in John 1:1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God." This illusion continues to intertwine itself in verses two. So Genesis 1:2, "The earth was without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep. the spirit of God hovered over the. Uh, the waters, and so we're continuing on in the creation process, but John is saying, do you know who that was, the agent behind that creation? Verse three, all things were made through him, the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, actually, John's first few verses here are logically the first verses of the Bible, when you think about it, because we have to do the the necessary pre-work to know, okay, what's going on in Genesis 1-1? Well, Let me tell you who is there and what they are doing, John says. Do you see in these verses that John is weaving together two themes in this overture that he's writing? He's blending previously well-known truth about who created the cosmos with newly revealed information through the revelation of Christ about who God is in his creative act. It's not like watching Wizard of Oz with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon over it, right? This is intentional. I, I So, confession, I watched that this week. It's crazy. <laughs> I was too young to appreciate the fear in my father's eyes when his friend told him about it, and I remember watching him do it. Like, why is he listening to that record and watching that boring movie? So I was a little boy when he was doing it. But man, that's, that's creepy. Go, Google it. It's weird. That's, that's not what John has in mind here. That's a... That's a coincidence, right? John means for you to watch the creation account with the album of the Word as God playing in your ears. The Word, the logos, the eternal creative force of fate for the Greeks, and the divine authoritative voice of Yahweh to the Jews. This logos is this power that is personal, And this, Logos, is a creative force. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This sentence is, in essence, a reinforcement and a clarification for the point that John had previously made in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, he declares that the Word is God and with God at the same time. That's a difficult mystery for people to accept, and it would have been very difficult for people in John's day to accept it as well. To the Jew, they would have read these first two verses and thought, impossible, because we know God is one. Therefore, the word can be with God, but there's no way the word can be God. But then, if a Greek picks this up and looks at it and says, well, that's impossible, because the logos is everything. Therefore, the word can be God, but he also can't be with God. Disagreement on opposite sides of the same coin. Surely, it's one or the other, heads or tails, God or with God. It can't be both at the same time. Throughout church history, it shouldn't surprise you to know, Christianity itself has struggled with reconciling what John means here, that the Word is with God, and the Word is God. And we fall in the either-or temptation as well. We're not immune to that confusion. Famously, there was a third century renegade priest named Arius who argued that the Word was not God. Uh, That's Arius on the left. In that picture. The Word is divine, he said, but he's certainly not God. So I'll grant there's something very special about the Word, but he's not God himself. In fact, Arius argued the Word was the first thing that God created. And then, through the Word, God created all other things. And he came up with songs for people to sing, to, to memorize his theology. And one of the song's lines went something like this, there was a time when the sun was not. So, there's a melody that people would sing on the streets. Well, in this picture is actually Saint Nicholas. Yeah, you didn't think he looked like that, did you? It's like, where's Rudolph? It gets better. Because Saint Nicholas is not touching Arius' face, as a friend would embrace another friend, he's punching him. Yeah, that's right, Saint Nicholas punching a heretic. Bet you didn't think you'd ever see that before, right? This is why this is one of my favorite frescoes in Turkey. This event, if we back out and look at the larger picture, is depicting what happens next after Arius begins to convince people that Jesus is created. They call together the First Council of Nicaea. And after a lot of debate, the church sided with the mystery of Scripture rather than the flawed logic of humanity. Why? Well, because Scripture is abundantly clear that the Father and Son are mysteriously one. You can't argue with what is being told to us, but we're so uncomfortable with mystery, surely it has to be one or the other. No. Faith and Scripture and our logic are good friends. Let them be. But second, because we're so uncomfortable with mystery, We try to offer some kind of logical answer, but our logic often fails us, as it did with Arius in this day. So one of the ways you could contend with Arius is to ask him the question, how can there be a time when the sun was not, if the sun stands outside of creation, which you believe, Arius, in which time itself is created? Right? Well, We think of creation as just typically the material, right? The physical things around us. Some of us might think, well, it's also the spiritual, right? Angels? Yes. But very few of us think of creation as the very laws that govern matter itself, time. So when we're talking about creation, we're also talking about time. So if both the Father and the Son existed before time, and time itself is a creation, the Father and the Son are timeless, and it's meaningless to say something like, there was a time when the Son was not. It's impossible, right? So, Arius in his teaching, Arianism, was classified as heresy, and for some reason, St. Nicholas punched him in the face. Well, why the history lesson, right? That seems like we solved that years ago. Thank you, Santa Claus. Uh, no. Actually, this heresy continues to exist today. It exists within the church, without the church, but you've probably encountered contemporary Arian thoughts about Christ through the Jehovah's Witness movement. The leaders of the Jehovah's Witness movement think it's foolish to believe in the Trinity and the fact that Christ was truly God and truly man. They'll argue the Trinity is from pagan influence. And Christ is truly God and truly man can't be because it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't it make more sense that God created the word? And so the official position of the organization and what they teach their people is that Christ was created. He's the first thing that was created. He's an archangel, a God, a lowercase g God. And God used Christ to create all other Things. Well, that's interesting. So how do Jehovah's Witness leaders justify that in teaching that to their people? Because John 1-1 is pretty clear, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. They don't explain it. They change it. Because if you were to look at John 1-1 in the vast majority of English translations, it reads something to the effect of, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. But the Jehovah's Witness organization has created a translation that meets their theology. And its translation changes this verse to read, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. My, how one letter changes the meaning of the entire gospel. Breaking Greek grammatical rules here which they only break here and nowhere else in the rest of the New Testament by the way Jehovah's Witnesses leaders have been poor stewards over their people and they have offered them a cheap imitation of the beautiful overture of John's gospel well let's give them benefit of the doubt maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses leaders are onto something maybe John did mean to say a God rather than God how do we know? Well, my answer would be because the verse we're studying today clarifies that for us, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's break this verse down to see what I mean. First, all things comes from the Greek past. The word here is panta, which means everything, all. There are no exclusions here. Everything means every thing, animate and inanimate, creation, all realms of existence, spiritual and physical, laws and ordinances of the universe, angels, atoms, electromagnetism, Gravity, animals, fire, water, stars, principalities, powers, planets, oceans, microbes, asteroids, humans, you get it? Everything is what John has in mind here. With that in mind, we have to recognize that all things, what we just talked about, were made through one pre-existing thing, something that existed before all things existed. John 3 says, all things were made through him. That's the positive statement of saying the word is creator. And just for good measure, to make sure for John, he knows what you're saying, he says it in the negative. And without him was not anything made that was made. So he says it in the positive, the word is creator. And in the negative, nothing was created without the word. So do you, you see what John is saying here and, and why the New Testament, or the, the New World Translation, which is the translation that Jehovah's Witness leaders have given to their people, can't be right. Let's think about everything that exists according to John 1:3. There can only really be two categories here. In the first category are all things that were never made. What, according to John, do you suppose belongs in the category of all things that were never made. It'd be God, right? Or the creator. Category two is different. It is all things that were made. What do we suppose should be in that category? Everything that's created, right? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There are things created by the word, and there are things not created by the word. To which category do you suppose the word then belongs to? Category one. Because the word cannot come into being at the point of its own creation. The painter cannot come into existence the same moment he or she begins to paint. The painter always precedes the painting. The painter is not part of the painting. The painter has contact with the painting, but they are different. So you have two categories, painter and painting. And if you were assigning the painter to the category of painting, well, then what does John mean that the painted painter painted everything, right? Say that five times fast. Well, Maybe Jehovah's Witness leaders have changed verse three, so that's no help for us, right? Funny enough, no. It's actually a very good translation for verse three. So in the experiences that I've had with very well-meaning and loving people from the movement about the Trinity, because that's a hot point if you've ever spoken with a a Jehovah's Witness, the conversation usually goes like this. Well, you're a pastor, you're a professor or whatever. Do you believe in the Trinity? I say, well, yes, of course I do. I said, well, do you know that Scripture doesn't support that? And I said, oh, well, I think it does. They said, well, where do you think it supports that? And I'll say, well, I think the first chapter of John does. And then they get excited because they're like, oh, do you mean John chapter 1 verse 1? Well, let's go there. And I'll say, no, I mean John chapter 1 verse 3. And they're like, what? Then I run them through this two-category deal. And I ask them, I force them, you have to put Christ in one of these two categories. You have to. And I'm not saying that. John's making us make that decision. John is forcing us to distinguish whether Christ, the Word, is Creator or Christ, the Word, is created. Now, the the more clever ones I've I've spoken with, and they're always really pleasant conversations. Um, I mean that sincerely. Uh, the more clever ones I've I've talk to, say, well, what does John mean by through? Maybe God made the word, and then he made everything else through the word. If all things were made through the word, would it, could it be that God created the word first, and then he created all other things? And I recognize where this is coming from. This is actually a very old thought that goes all the way back to the beginning of the church called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that the physical, the material, the matter, the creation, is fallen and dirty and broken and unholy, So if God is righteous and holy and eternal, he can't possibly come in contact with creation. God desires to create matter, but he can't bear to touch it. So God creates a lowercase g God, the word who, like a pair of gloves, allows God now to touch the matter in creation. That's where that impulse is coming from. It's a very old thought. And my response to this is first, this assumes God can't bear to touch creation. But we know that's not true because in the very first chapters of Scripture, we find God walking in the cool of the garden with the image bearers he's just created. He speaks forth, recruiting a prophet named Moses from a burning bush. And he chooses to dwell with his people, the Israelites, in tabernacle and in temple. So, it cannot be that God is allergic to matter. He called it very good. Secondly, ironically, even though when Jehovah's Witnesses say this, they're attempting to defend God from pollution, which is an admirable thing, their position is actually lessening God's Lordship. So, it's an ironic twist of fate for them, unfortunately. You see, if God needs something to interact with creation, then he's dependent on his own creation. Which, in turn, communicates some kind of deficiency or weakness in his right to rule over that creation. Theologian John Frame put it like this, "'In creation, God acts as Lord. "'He needs no helpers. "'He needs not fear the creation will somehow harm him. "'He cannot be confused with the world, "'for it does not emanate from his essence. It has its own distinct nature. He controls all, interprets all, and thereby enters into an intimate relationship with his world. In other words, God doesn't need a mediator because he never needs. Period. Third, unfortunately, this misunderstands the word through here as it does in other places in the New Testament. Through, the word through, dia in Greek, it's like English. It has a lot of uses. It's flexible. Um, So, for example, in, in English, if I was to say Um, we need to to get through better ways of of something, of accomplishing something. What I'm saying is we need to find something that we can use to accomplish a goal. That's one way of saying through. If I say, um, my wife and I were in Fairhope and then we came back to Mobile through the tunnel, that's a second way that we can use the word through, right? There I'm saying there's a medium that I use to to arrive at a destination. And that's usually what people think of when when you think of through, right? But there's more. I could throw my hands up in the air after just 30 seconds and say, I'm through with Facebook, which I do very often. <laughs> what am I saying here? The usefulness for this tool has expired. That's very different than the first two, right? But we forget there's a fourth one of many more. Through can communicate by means of something or because something is, is caused, right? So, um, fun fact about me, in my family, and my heritage, I'm related to persecuted French Protestants who immigrated to Virginia to escape persecution in the 17th century through my father's line. Did you see how I use that word, through? The source, the cause, the genesis of my heritage to something in the past comes through my father. This is the meaning that John has in mind here. All things came into being through the Word. The source, the cause, the genesis of all things comes through the Word. Christ is no mere mediator, a tool used to create everything. Christ, the Word, is the sole cause. Or in other words, in Romans 11, at the end of Paul's letter, he elaborates, "...for from Christ and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen." From him, the source, through him, the cause, to him, the purpose. John is not depicting Christ here as some kind of mediator between God and matter. He's not merely a pair of gloves that God is donning so that he can touch creation. Rather, John is saying that Christ himself is the agent that caused all things to exist. As Paul says, he is the one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And the author of Hebrews likewise says, in these last days, God spoke to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So this isn't just John saying this. This is the same song that the entire chorus of the New Testament is singing and reflecting on the encounter they had with the Lord. So what's the big deal, right? What's up with seminary guy today? <laughs> like, why do we got to talk about all this theology and stuff? Isn't this just semantics? Like, who cares if I think Jesus is created? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> First, we are bucking against the authority of Scripture if we deny the divinity of Christ. And if we buck the authority of Scripture in mystery, what do you think we're going to do when it comes to things we don't like? about it. Second, we lose Christ as the image of God. For Christ cannot be the exact imprint of God's nature, as Hebrews tells us, without being God himself. I look a lot like my dad, we sound alike, we have the same stupid sense of humor. So if you look at me and you knew him, you'd be like, man, there's a connection. But I am not an exact imprint of my father in the same way that Christ could not be an exact imprint of his Father if he was not God himself. And third, and I think most importantly, if Christ was a mere creation with all of the limitations that comes with being in the created category rather than the creator category, then our atonement is likewise limited and in jeopardy. Our sin against an infinite, limitless God requires an equivalent sacrifice, one that is infinite and limitless in scope. Andrew Fuller, theologian, had this to say on this very point, the deity and the atonement of Christ have always among thinking people, which is hilarious to me. Unthinking people haven't thought this. It's pretty mean of him to say. But the deity and the atonement of Christ have always among thinking people stood or fallen together. And with them, almost every important doctrine of the gospel. So for him, the deity of Christ and atonement, if you get those wrong, the rest of the whole thing falls apart. He goes on to make an even stronger statement. The person of Christ is the foundation stone on which the church is built. An error, therefore, on this subject affects our whole preaching and the whole of our religion, our faith, Christianity. So if you get the atonement wrong and the deity of Christ wrong, there's no point to being a Christian. The whole thing crumbles down. That's a very strong language, but I think he's right. John is very clear about the person of Christ, even if Christ's person is unclear in our imaginations, even if it's difficult for us to grasp what he's saying. But I would submit to you and ask you, Please allow the paradox of mysteries of God to rest in you. Jack briefly made the point last week, which is a great point. We have a hard time understanding our own physical creation. Like, talk to cosmologists, talk to quantum physicists, and ask them, do we know for certain what's going on? And they'll tell you, no, it's crazy up there and crazy down here in in the macro level, micro and the macro levels, right? We've got like protons that just decide at any given moment, I want to be in San Francisco, even though I was in New York a second ago, just because I can time travel, who cares, right? It's just, it's like infinity war down there. We don't understand the physical creation, and yet we'll have the hubris to say we understand the creator. Allow that mystery to rest in you. And if you change God's word to match your understanding, then how different are you than the serpent? in the garden, who said, did God really say? Did John really say the word is God? It's not God whom you're worshiping at that point. You're, ma- you're worshiping a figment of your imagination that doesn't even exist, an idol. You see, that's the problem with heresy. Heresy changes God's word to reimagine the word after our own image. Heresy changes God's word to reimagine the word after our own image. And is that not the exact opposite project of sanctification where the word revealed to us in God's word is conforming us after his image? It's a complete reversal, which is why it's so problematic. But I don't want to be unkind. I understand the draw to heresy. I do. We all feel drawn to heresy sometimes, whether we know it or not. And I think it's out of a good desire. And that good desire is this. We were created with an insatiable appetite to know our creator. That didn't go away with the fall. We want to know everything about him. That's a good thing. And yet, sin has disoriented that pursuit of our hearts and our minds. But because we're off course now, the desire is still there, guess what happens? We run with it. And impatience gets the best of us because God will reveal all he pleases to us. It just takes time. But we get impatient. We force our imaginations on God's word and we commit a grave sin that could lead ourselves and the people we lead and have influence with to persist in sin and death. That's the problem with heresy. And with this point, if Christ is not creator then he has no overship over the creation. And if he has no overship over this creation, then he has no right to redeem it. But we know that that's simply not true, that the Lord Jesus is creator. And because he is creator, he has the right. And if Christ is creator, this is the good news, we know the character and the person of the one who holds all things together in his hands. Reflecting on this point, Paul can't hold it in. The beginning of Colossians and just bursts into this beautiful prose. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who else but Christ would you rather in that position? Who else would you rather but the Lord Jesus have such power and authority over creation to which you belong? The one who condescended from his throne to enter into the mess of our lives. The one who called the cast-asides, the rejects, the down-and-outs, the backwoods people, the blue-collar, the uneducated. The one who loved children when nobody else would. The one who stooped into the plight of women, both prostitutes and foreigners, to lift their chin up to see what is true love and acceptance the one who took proud and cowardly men and turned them into humble, bold witnesses, which is true, biblical masculinity, the one who defeated death at its own game, the one who sits enthroned with all power and authority, through whom all things were created and through whom all things are now being recreated. You see, if Christ is creator, he has the power to create. And if he has the power to create, does he not also have the power to recreate? this is the hopeful promise of our faith. Not that Christ is making all new things, but that he's making all things new. We're given a vision in Roman, or Revelation 21 of a new heaven and a new earth and a new city, new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, adorned like a bride prepared for her husband, where God would dwell with his people forever. And there is one who is seated on the throne, we are told, is Christ. And he says declaratively to the universe, behold, I am making all things new. Christ, the creator, could have taken the easy route. He could have looked down at creation before incarnating, said, "Uh uh-uh, destroyed us all, started again, and make all new things. But he didn't. Christ looked at us in our pitiful and selfish and sinful state, and he took the hard way through death on a cross to make all things new. There's a difference, right? There's a big difference between making all new things and making all things new. And his project of making all things new includes us. That by faith in the faithfulness of Christ in his decision to take the hard way, We are promised a newness that can only come from the power and authority of Christ to recreate us. And with this recreation comes a blessing to conquer sin. The vision continues on in Revelation 21 in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Sonship there is language that includes inheritance. But without this recreation comes the curse of being conquered by sin. The very next verse, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So Paul commands us in Colossians three ten: put on the new self. Strive in the Holy Spirit on a journey towards the heritage that you have been given by grace alone. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of what? Its creator. Why? Because by faith, the old self is dead, the new self is alive. The new self is the one that will receive this heritage. Paul reminds us, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walk, carrying out the desires of body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But those beautiful words in Scripture, this promise, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. We were dead, now we're alive. The old life is dead, the new life is alive, so put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." This is so important to grasp in relationship to Christ as creator. Because so many of us struggle to put on the new self, myself included. The old self constantly calls us to its grave. It's lonely there and jealous of the life you have. And so your old life, like a zombie, calls you. And it's like a petulant child that can't stand to be alone and ignored. So it's constantly jumping in front of you And your past sin feels more like a condemning present. And in those moments, we despair, but we shouldn't. Because Christ, as creator, has not called us to have been holy. He called us to be holy. Christ has not called us to have been holy. He has called us to be holy. Because his creation fell. He took the hard way. He's redeeming it and he is recreating us through the power of the Holy Spirit now. Let Christ, your recreating creator, work on you, in you, and for you. Because as Paul says, we are his. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, what an amazingly deep word that John has given us by your spirit here in verse three. That we recognize the small fragile baby born in a tiny town 2,000 years ago was actually the one who created it all and sustains it all. Lord, help us to be a people who recognize Christ as creator with the power and the authority and the sovereignty that this comes with, but also a people that recognizes him as our recreator. That by the Holy Spirit and our faith in his faithfulness, we are being renewed daily through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit as we join his recreative process of making all things new. Lord, we yearn for the day when that project is complete, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. There are new heavens and there are new earth. Satan's sin and death and all of his schemes are forever destroyed. Grant us patience and grace and wisdom as we patiently wait for that day to come and as brothers and sisters in the world all around us patiently endure. We love you, our recreating God, and it's in your son's name we pray, amen.